Media at SAFM with Ashraf Gardner. Right, uh, I think let's let's get the one fact right. James Foley, the the photojournalist uh, who was killed in uh, in Iraq a few days ago, beheaded. In fact, horrific beheading. And and whatever people's views about the the ideolo- ideologies being fought out around the world, that's one issue aside. The more important one for now that we're talking about from a pure media perspective is so journalists when, when they're out on the job. When they're out into war zones, and they have to be in war zones for people like you, my, yourself and I to, to, to read, to see pictures of these important developments around the world. Can they be given protection? Obviously, James Foley did not get protected. Can they be given protection? And this is very important without becoming embedded, because there's a sense that the only way you can be really protected is you have to become embedded with one of the warring parties so that you, you see things through their perspective. And what does that really mean? Let's uh, check more about it with Sue Valentine, uh, who's, uh, well, CPJ's Africa Program Coordinator. Sue, good chatting to you. Hi. Hi, Ashraf. Good morning. Thank you so much. First of all, just about, you know, the, the implications, firstly, with regard to James Foley's death in terms of, of uh, not just media or, or press freedom, but, but, but media safety. Sure. Look, Syria is the most dangerous place in the world at the moment to, to work as a journalist. Syria, you know, Iraq, that, that region, um, by, you know, the most journalists have been killed there this year. So it's, it is an extremely, extremely dangerous place. And, you know, the, the safest thing is not to go. <laughs> but if you do choose to go, then there are things that journalists can do to try and protect themselves. But, you know, it's also a question of resources. So we know that, uh, you know, local journalists often just don't have those resources. And in fact, it's more local journalists who've been killed than, than foreign journalists. Uh, I think James's death, though, was, you know, so brutal, so graphic, um, that that has really captured people's attention. And, and, and rightly so that we focus on the safety of journalists. But it is an extremely, extremely dangerous place, place to practice journalism. So, so when you say local journalists, you mean in, in, in any particular country, in this case we could be talking about Syria or Iraq, in fact there's a better chance that journalists from that country, under-resourced, would be killed than people like, uh, in this case we were just talking about James Foley. Yeah, yeah. Generally, yes. And certainly in the case uh, in, in Syria, um, it's lo- more local journalists have been killed than, than foreign journalists. Um, and the thing is that, you know, what foreign journalists generally generally have, but not always, is that they've usually, if they come from a, a recognized uh, news outlet, there is security training. So people actually have that kind of uh, briefings, how to deal with hostile environments. Uh, they usually have some of the safety gear and so on to protect themselves. So they generally have that kind of support. It's freelancers who are generally the most vulnerable. And, you know, three quarters of the journalists who've been killed uh, in, in Syria uh, are freelancers. So they are the most vulnerable. And James was a freelancer, even though he worked for some, uh, you know, reputable and well-resourced uh, news outlet. Um, and so, they, you know, the things that journalists can do is you know, there are certain procedures that, uh, and then numerous safety guides say, that, that journalists can read that actually can help them to, to think about often simple practical measures that they can take, but things like partnering with, with other journalists, don't go out there on your own, tell people where you're going, have check-ins, um, use trusted networks to guide you into a place and guide you out. Um, a lot of the journalists who have been kidnapped uh, in, in, the, in Syria and Iraq 
are betrayed whilst crossing from Turkey into Syria mm-hmm. um, because uh, they then are kidnapped and, and held for ransom. So, you know, those are some of the things that one can be aware of and try and take those measures, but ultimately you are in an extremely dangerous case. All right, and, and the point that I made, besides, you know, being with your mates and letting them know where you're going and being well protected, what about the issue of being embedded? Because... In any situation, I mean, the, the term embedded, I think, came up around the Gulf War time, you know. What, what does that really mean? And, and is that a way to get the story, but also to ensure that you, in fact, are being protected, and in many cases, you're being protected by one of the two parties at war? Well, you are being protected by one of those two parties, but if you are embedded, often you are in the uniform of, of that, of that uh, army that you're with, and then you are actually a legitimate target. Um, and so... You know, there's there's dangers in being embedded, as uh, so long as you're on the on the winning side, I suppose. Uh, you know, earlier this year in in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a couple of journalists were killed who were embedded with Congolese forces uh, fighting rebels in in North Kivu province. So, you know, there's there dangers that go with being embedded. Having said that, I think that partly that the nature of of conflicts in in the last 10, 20 years, have been that even if you go in as a so-called neutral, non-aligned journalist and, and try, traditionally go in to observe and try and move between warring parties or warring factions, uh, journalists are often are increasingly, I think, being seen to be aligned one side or another. And I think that's you know, clearly the case with James, uh, if we come back to his uh, situation where he uh, you know, was was an American, and although and no no ransom was paid, but he was seen to be affiliated with one side, even though he wasn't embedded. Mm, okay. By the way, we'll chat to Lucien Pierce, uh, Pierce pretty shortly about. Uh, the the actual visuals that were you know gone that went viral in fact on on Twitter and why was it allowed to go viral then when why was it removed just the ethics around that but let's stay for now with Sue Valentine the Africa program coordinator that CPJ of course uh, look talking about the beheading of James Foley what what this does tell me however is is how journalists increasingly are being used as a target but be leveraged that means it's an easy way to get a journalist to prove a point. Sure, uh, and you know the, the point has been made all too graphically this past week. Um, what does one do with that? You know, journalists have got a choice, and whether a story is worth your life is is uh, the question that every journalist has to ask themselves. And I, there's no shame in not going into those areas, um, but for do you know they are tremendously uh, courageous individuals who go there in order to. Uh, bear witness, which was the phrase that Marie Colvin used uh, before she was killed in Syria in 2012. So, uh, you know, they are performing an incredibly important role, and, and that's why the Committee to Protect Journalists, I think, you know, emphasizes the protection and the right of journalists to do their jobs because they are there to convey the information and show us what is going on. And if they're not there, well, the news dries up and, and we are less informed as a result, but it is, you know, it's terribly dangerous. So, uh, so your opinion... With, with, yeah. Okay, so, so your opinion, therefore, Sue, maybe finally, is do you think what has happened to, to James Foley, and I mean, there are other journalists waiting in the queue, you know, in, in this case, if I have to take the ISIS or Islamic State threat seriously, waiting in the queue to be beheaded to prove a point once again, would this dissuade journalists from, from working in those war zones? What, what are your thoughts about it? 
I think you've got to talk to each individual journalist. I don't think it, it has deterred people. People are still going in. Uh, I think it obviously make, gives you pause to for thought uh, and, and what sort of protective measures one can take uh, and perhaps where you choose to go to. Um, but, you know, we'll need to see. Uh, I, I don't believe – I think that there's – the commitment to tell the story is extremely strong, uh, and that's that's the, the heartbeat for so many journalists. And so that people will still be going there. And as I say, a lot of those journalists who are trying to tell the story are locals, and I think that sometimes we need to find ways to hear the stories that, that they're telling and not just the stories from foreign correspondents. All right, and just finally, would this see maybe a rewriting of of the rule books? Let's say from from your point of view, from the Africa Program Coordinator for for CPJ or not? When I say rewriting the rule books, would, would this see a change in terms of of strategy with with regard to covering uh, you know world hotspots? Look, no, I, I think that. I think that journalists should be covering the stories. Uh, I don't think any journalist should be forced to go into an area that they don't wish to go to. But those who do, I think, need to be given the correct, appropriate support by their news organizations. Um, and those who go in as freelancers, well, you know, those are the most, most vulnerable. And they need to take really careful care of that they're as well in, as formed as informed as possible that they have taken particular security measures. I don't think that there's any, you know, new rules that need to be written. Uh, I call on uh, news companies to ensure that their journalists get the kind of security briefings and trainings that would keep them safe, that would at least prepare them for the situation. Uh, and then I think uh, we'd continue to on people to respect the rights of journalists to do their jobs, whether it's in Ferguson, Missouri, in Ethiopia, in Swaziland, or in Syria. Okay, that's where we're going to leave you. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Sue Valentine, the Africa Program Coordinator for CPJ, looking at the issue of protecting, well, safety to a large degree of journalists around the world and the fact that many of them are in really troubled areas around the world, but they don't go, of course, and we don't have the stories, don't we? And that includes photojournalists, in particular, I think, photographs as well as uh, visuals. Lots more to come. We'll chat about Wonga, but very importantly, Twitter removing the beheading of James Foley. What are your thoughts about that after this? Media at SAFM with Ashraf Gardner. Okay, so let's, uh, let's find out more about it. Lucien Pierce with me, who's the head of telecommunications, media and technology at the Pukubje Pierce Masitela Attorneys. Lucien, good chatting to you once again. Hi. Hi, Ashraf. Good but, to talk to you again. Thank you. Okay, so let, let's get the story right. James Foley gets beheaded, shockingly. Uh, everybody talks about it. Uh, there are video clips because that clearly is what was put up by the Islamic State or, or ISIS. Uh, people get hold of it, they share it, and it, it goes absolutely viral, as obviously the, the perpetrators would want to happen. But also, all of us are very interested in the story, so therefore we want to share it. Anything wrong in that? Uh, I, I don't see a problem, uh, Ashraf, with, with people sharing uh, the video clips and the images. Um, I haven't li- uh, looked at it simply because I, I, I disagree with, um, with with seeing it. But I think you know people have the right to to, to see the images and and to discuss it. So, 
And we do know that images were, were particularly horrific. I mean, it's a live, live execution, really, of, of, of a beheading of a person, right? Uh, at some stage, it went viral. Then Twitter removed it. So are you saying you disagree with Twitter? I, I do disagree with Twitter. You know, um, how many times in the past have you heard people saying, oh, if only I had known about this, I would have been able to make a better decision. Um, and I think, you know, Twitter shouldn't, shouldn't be censoring it. They're putting themselves in a bit of a tough spot because in the past they've allowed similar images, but in this particular instance, they decided to, to censor it. So, so wh- why the difference then, in your opinion? Um, I'm not entirely sure. It's, it's probably because of the, the, the extent of the publicity around this. Um, you know, there have been other, other instances where it, pictures of, of uh, drug mules being executed by rival cartels, um, you know, those pictures have been left on. So in this instance, I, I think it's, it's simply because uh, Twitter's probably taken the position that they don't want to, to, to punt this organization or give them a platform to, to um, promote mm-hmm. themselves. But, but okay, so, so there's two parts. One is, and, and the case for removing it is the fact that it's, it's horrific, right? The case yeah. against it is freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of the global media, and that's what social media really is, is all about. So w- when is horrific too horrific? Oh, you know, uh, there, there are sites like LiveLink which show equally um, horrific images and leave them on and allow people to use their discretion whether to, to view them or not. I think it would depend on, on uh, you know, if you want to talk in a South African context, context whether it's, it's contravening our constitution, you know, whether it's hate speech or, or something similar. In this instance, you know, watching the video and if there's no sound, it, it's, it's not like you're promoting hate speech or anything like that. People, you know, must have the opportunity to, to decide, make a, a decision for themselves as to whether this organization makes sense or not, um, and, uh, you know, take it from there. Mm. So, so let, let's take, for example, the, the corresponding one, the one about the EFF in Parliament. One, it's, it's usually entertaining. B, it can also be, be, be shockingly disrespectful in terms of how they, they performed in Parliament. And as we know, they, they were kicked out finally. But as we all watch it and as we all share it, could we be inadvertently promoting the EFF cause? And, and in answering that question, isn't that the issue here? That outside the, the horrific uh, uh, beheading, are we not actually inadvertently promoting the cause of, of the perpetrators? By sharing? Well, that's, that's, yes, that's precisely what it is. The more people share these images, whether it be the EFF or whether it be uh, IS, um, you know, they're, they're publicizing this, these organizations. And that's why I said in, in the very beginning, I, in my very own little way, decided not to view the leaflet, mm-hmm. not to retweet it or anything like that, simply because I don't want to be part of their PR campaign. All right, now, you said that, that Twitter has allowed something similar things like this in the past. They haven't allowed it this time. Someone suggesting, uh, and feel free to SMS, by the way, 34701 if you're SMSing, if you're tweeting at Ashraf Ganta, just your thoughts whether Twitter's got it right with regard to removing the images of the, of the execution, in this case, the beheading of, of James Foley. Someone suggesting they did so under political pressure. Now, now, you may not have the answers, I understand that. But if that were the case, do you find yourself that, that Twitter then falls foul of, of not being neutral, uh, no matter, un, under whatever pressure, they need to be neutral at all times? I, I agree, you know. Um, it, it's strange that only recently um, they've, they've changed their policy. Their reason for, for um, taking the pictures down is that they've re- received requests from family members, especially in, in instances such as this of gruesome uh, images. 
Uh, but I do think that there was some political pressure. I do think they placed themselves in a quandary in the future, uh, especially where, where there are images that uh, might not be from organizations that see as terrorist organizations. Uh, you know, in the past, I mean, the, the execution of Saddam Hussein was, was viewed on mm. YouTube and other organizations, but it wasn't removed. Why? So, would, would then, your advice from a legal perspective, could, could we see Twitter painting themselves in a corner? And maybe the only way out is people either stop using it because the, there's a credibility issue long term? I think they've put themselves into a bit of a spot, you know. Um, they've been the, the biggest proponents of sp- free speech. Um, you know, they call themselves the, the free speech committee of the free speech party. That's how seriously they take it. But in this instance, you know, they're, they're deciding on behalf of their users, and I think that's going to create a problem for them in the future. Okay, well, so what, we're going to chat lots more about this in the future in terms of what may happen next. Lucien Pierre's great chatting to you, and once again, thanks for your great insights into the legal issues around what Welcome. happens on, uh, on social media.